This is an ABC podcast. My guest on Conversations from Home today is the Irish novelist Marion Keyes. Marion's books are devoured around the world for their believably messy human stories and their gorgeous Irish warmth. The last few years have been big for Marion. She became involved in the referendum to change abortion laws in Ireland and she also lost her beloved dad, Ted. Marion's new novel is called Growing Ups. It's a story about families and secrets and standing on your own two feet. Hi, Marion. Hi, Sarah. The family in this new novel in Growing Ups, they go away on holiday together quite a bit. Is this something you do with your family? Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah, I come from, a, but I mean, it's not that big by Irish standards. I have four brothers and sisters and uh, they have spouses and they have kids and we, we're all very fond of each other. And we do spend a lot of time together. Um, you know, we usually go away at Easter and then we often go away for a week somewhere in the summer. And then, you know, obviously we have Christmas together. So the family and grown-ups are, are not my family. Like none of the, the characters are similar. Well, there is one, but I'll come to that. <laughs> the whole dynamic of a big, noisy, messy family where even though you don't get on with everyone or you don't share the same views as everyone, there's still that sense that like, for me anyway, that we travel as a pack. Everybody has to be there even the person that you may disagree with. And I, I wanted to take that sense of fun and also, I suppose, disparate personalities and bring it to the book because I feel really lucky, you know, to come from the family that I do. And they, they entertain me endlessly and I feel very safe with them. And I wanted to bring that and hopefully that the reader will feel that they belong to a similar, you know, family in the book. That was kind of what I wanted to create. Does everyone have sort of set roles in your family? I have a big family too, Marianne, and, and I feel like even if we have quite different roles in the rest of our lives, once we're together, we seem to slot into a certain way of being. Does that happen with your mob? Completely, completely. And we all got stuck in our roles really early on. And it doesn't matter now that we're like in our 40s and I'm in my 50s, you know, that one person is the person who is always late, you know, <laughs> and the other person is the person who runs the kitty on the holidays and that you kind of you are terrified of buying an unapproved item on the list. And I'm the eldest and I am regarded as a mini dad, you know, that I'm the person yelling at the bottom of the stairs with my clipboard. Come on, we'll be late. And, you know, I'm the organizer, but very much so. And it's so weird that like we can be adults and independent and functioning wonderfully in the real world. But then the minute we go back, back to our family of origin, we get slotted into a role that kind of no longer really fits us. But at the same time, we do it obediently. It's fascinating. <laughs> well, the, the character in your novel in Growing Ups who takes the lead in all this family organising is a woman called Jessie. Have you got some similarities to her oh, then? Uh, yes, I am afraid I do. <laughs> Jessie is married to the oldest brother, Johnny, and she was an only child. And she is delighted with this extended family she's married into. And she's always organizing, you know, like weekends away or, you know, anytime there's kind of something small like a kid's birthday party, it becomes this all singing, all dancing production and everybody has to be there. And I am very much Jessie. 
And everybody knows it. And I know that they all snigger and make fun of me, you know, my brothers and sisters, and they call me a control freak. And they're absolutely right to, <laughs> you know, and I'm the person who's always on the family WhatsApp, you know, saying, hey, it's so-and-so's birthday. So why don't we all, you know, get together? And the thing is, I am in cahoots with my mother on this because my mother very much likes all of us together. You know, if there's even like there are 18 of us, I think. And if there's even one person missing, she behaves, you know, she's like the princess and the pea in reverse, <laughs> you know, like th that missing person is her. Their loss is keenly felt. And because I'm in this very kind of dysfunctional, please approve of me relationship with my mother, you know, we're very codependent. Well, I'm codependent on her. And so if she says something vague, like, wouldn't it be lovely if we could all get together on Friday? And I take that for what it is, which is it's a direct order. So I get on the family WhatsApp group and I, you know, I promise pizzas, I promise Prosecco, you know, I promise ice cream in order to get everybody to agree to come on the particular Friday. And then if I feel that some people are dragging their feet and they haven't responded to me in enough time, I have to kind of, you know, send in the heavy guns and I have to say things like, you know, poor mom, you know, she wasn't looking great now there the last time I saw her, you know, like I am not above emotional blackmail. Marion, I think in another life you would have been a great mafia member or, you, you know, you're kind of the velvet mafia. I can see you putting on all the screws yeah. there to get your mum to get the sort of overseer's yes. desires yeah. lived out. Yeah, and you see, I wouldn't be the leader because I wouldn't have I wouldn't have the kind of the vision to be the leader, but I would be the very good, obedient enforcer. kind of second in command, the enforcer. And I know that they call me things. I mean, they do actually call me her commandant, my <laughs> brothers and sisters. And and that happens to poor Jessie as well. But yeah, that is my role, you know, the rounder up of everybody and uh, and to be the object of people's um, uh, sneering. But look. And appreciation, though. Appreciation, because if you weren't sending around those WhatsApp messages, it's so-and-so's birthday, they wouldn't do it. So you play a very valuable role. Yeah, and they're getting pizza and Prosecco and cake. I mean, you know, like it, it's not the hardest thing in the world for them. The other thing about uh, Jessie in this novel is she's made good money through her own business. She runs a, a gourmet grocery and that sort of puts her in an interesting position because she's wealthier than her friends and family and she's very generous. Yeah. So she wants to shout them all these trips and dinners, which on the one hand they're really grateful for, but then feel sort of compromised by. I mean, you must have had to navigate some of this stuff yourself, I'm guessing. Well, yes. I mean, on the one hand, I will say, you know, of course, it is so lovely not to be skint. You know, I spent a lot of my life being skint and it is absolutely it's lovely to have money to do nice things. And mercifully, I didn't turn into one of those people who, you know, got a few quid and then, you know, kept it all in a biscuit tin under under her bed and, you know, took it out at night and counted it. My impulse is to be is to be generous. And I, I'm really glad I'm that person. And I really like that, you know, as you say, I can shout us all these trips and everything. The thing that really mattered to me was that, you know, money can be very corrupting. Those who have it can abuse their power and those who don't have it can really resent it. And so I've tried to kind of keep all communication about it open, you know, with my brothers and sisters and my friends. And I just, you know, if somebody needs something, 
you know, if they need money to, you know, convert their garage or, you know, or, or if they have an emergency and they haven't planned for it. I always want to be the person that they'll come to. And I don't give loans because I feel it causes a very weird imbalanced relationship until the money is paid back. Uh, so if, if a person needs something and I have it, I just give it to them because my relationship with people is more important than money. You better watch out or you'll be besieged on Twitter, Marianne, after this. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone wanting to convert their garage or, you know. Well, get a new TV. I, I would have to know the person before, you know, <laughs> would have to have a prior relationship. And, you know, and that's not to say that I always get it right, Sarah, because I don't. If you were a person who, as I say, you know, owed money to everybody and suddenly you had, you know, you had enough to kind of take care of yourself. I had no skills for being a person with a few quid. Like I didn't. And there were times when I just didn't know how to behave and I either gave too much or I did it in the wrong way or I offered and I offended people and that's something that I've had to learn. How have you learned that? Is it just through trial and error or, or how have you gone Completely. about learning that? Completely. And I suppose having taken the decision that I didn't want to give loans, you know, because it just makes everything horribly awkward, that can sometimes blow up in my face a little bit. But the thing is, the relationship is always more important to me than than the money. And that has kind of been my bottom line. And if a person abuses what I've done, so be it. Like boo-hoo for me. Like, you know, it's it's kind of everyone should have my problems. But <laughs> yeah, I've, I have learned. The novel, as I say, is called Growing Ups. What did you think being grown up meant back when you were a teenager, say? Do you remember Oh, my God. Well, as a teenager, I it was more when I was maybe eight or nine. I just thought being grown up meant you were never afraid that like nothing frightened you in the world and that you had agency to fix anything that bothered you and that you were answerable to nobody, that you were the boss of you because I felt very powerless always. Yeah. And I just thought being a grown up meant absence of fear and absence of accountability. And how has um, that played yeah. out in the experience of becoming oh, a grown up? I mean, <laughs> it has been interesting to realise that the fears don't go, they simply change. You know, I see my poor uh, my poor um, nephews and, you know, recently, I don't know, I made a reference to being worried about something and Oscar, who was about eight at the time, because I didn't know grown ups got worried. And I felt, oh, my God, son, you know, you have a lot of uh, stuff ahead of you. Yeah, just that my fears have changed, my worries have changed and my accountability remains. And in a way, it's worse as an adult, because as a child, there are if you're lucky, there are people who will take care of you, who have more power than you. As an adult, there are very few people with power. Who can take care of you? You know, ultimately, it's down to ourselves. I was going to say, maybe that's part of the growing up realisation is that there is no one else to take care of you. Not discounting the importance of relationships and love and family and all that. But like, ultimately, I'm out of the nest now. Like, this is on me what I do here. Yes, there's no safety net. And there is no authority figure who'll swoop in. And, and fix things. Yeah, like that you're, you know, you are without resources except the ones that you carry within yourself. And that can be scary. 
I wonder if that if that hits people differently or more strongly who've been raised like you were and, and like I was in Catholicism or any religious faith, I guess, where they're saying, okay, there is this God who's going, who's always looking, you're raised with this idea of there being this supernatural figure who's ultimately in charge of your life. When, or if you let go of that, maybe the, the loneliness or the, the, the self-responsibility of, of growing upness feels yeah. stronger. Yeah, maybe it does. Yeah, because hard as it was to feel judged the whole time and to feel like your every small action, you know, was weighed up as good or bad. Yeah, when you finally realize, well, as I did, that, you know, there for me, there is no man in the sky, you know, with my best interests at heart. Yeah, that, that can be a shock. But I felt that very early on, like from the age of about seven, I'd say. Really? You know, was there a moment where that hit you? Or how did that happen for you? Yeah, kind of. When you make your first confession, you know, when you sit in a dark wooden box and, you know, as a small child, six or seven, and tell your alleged wrongdoings to a man behind a a screen and he gives you absolution. I remember coming back to the classroom after that and the teacher saying, doesn't it feel marvellous? Don't you feel so light and clean? And, And I didn't. And I knew then that either the problem was me or the problem was the religion. And for once, I didn't actually think it was me. Mm. I thought they've all drunk the Kool-Aid, even though I didn't know what Kool-Aid was at that age. They've <laughs> all drunk their alcohol. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. You know, for me then, it's funny, they loaded me up with shame, but I never got any of the comfort of Catholicism. <laughs> you know, just all the bad stuff. There's a point in Growing Ups where this character, Jessie, asks her son, Ferdy, who's in his early 20s, to keep a secret. And when he agrees, she says, oh, look at you, all grown up. This thing of keeping secrets and being a grown up, that seems to be something you're teasing out in this book as well. Is, is keeping secrets an unavoidable part of being grown up? Keeping secrets is an unavoidable part of being a grown-up if you want to have harmonious relationships with people. I mean, I think in any group of people, whether it's a group of friends or whether it's a, a bunch of people in a workplace or within a family, somebody is always going to drive you mad. You know, people are just going to get on one's nerves. It's unavoidable. It really can't be helped. Or you might accidentally find out something about a person and it really wouldn't help anyone if you told. And, you know, I know people who say like lying is terrible, like obviously big lies are terrible, but keeping quiet about things that could hurt people is very much part of being an adult. Some white lies are necessary to keep the wheels turning smoothly in any set of relationships. I don't think that there's any malice intended in holding back. I think it would be actually cruel in many cases to just let slip those small details. You know, I'm not talking about, you know, details that would hurt people. But you just, you know, if somebody if somebody whistles a lot and you want to like you want to like land an axe in their head. But it's something that obviously keeps them calm. You know, it's just better to not say anything, you know, and then then you continue talking. The keeping of of white lies, of small secrets in this book starts to unravel right at the beginning with with Kara. What's happened to her that that loosens her tongue in an unhelpful way, perhaps? 
at the beginning of mm. the book, which is also sort of the end of the book, they're all at um, Johnny's birthday dinner party. And Cara got concussion earlier in the day. And I know somebody that this actually happened to. She got concussion and suddenly she couldn't she couldn't do that social eliding. You know, she couldn't kind of ignore those small little irritating things or those small little things she knew about people. And she started speaking the truth. And this woman that I knew who had it, she suddenly became very surly. And um, it was it was very interesting because I didn't know what was wrong with her initially. And she'd be saying thing, things like, well, I don't want to do that. And uh, oh, yeah, well, I know about her. And weird stuff like that, you know, which wasn't like her. And yeah, Cara says something, well, several things that she shouldn't say. And most of them are fairly benign. But then she lets one, a bigger one, out of the bag. And although the reader doesn't know what it is, we know it's a biggie. And then that kind of kickstarts a series of the others throwing each other under the bus <laughs> with secrets that they know out about each other. And again, the reader doesn't know what it was, what it is, but they're serious. And that that's kind of the whole, the book starts then six months earlier. And that's the whole drive of the book. You know, what happened between all the various characters to get them to this night where the terrible secrets got revealed. Kara herself is keeping a big secret or, or trying her mm -hmm. best to keep a secret from her husband and the rest of her family. W what is she hiding? Kara has an eating disorder. She has bulimia. And, um, you know, it's a horrible illness that hides in plain sight. With eating disorders, they are very apparent at the extremes. But with bulimia, the sufferers present usually as a regular weight. And so people don't notice. And people with bulimia can carry on for a very long time in this state of torment. And it's unlikely that there would be an intervention because nobody notices. And Cara has been living with this and it's it's damaging her you know, her, her work life. But it's the internal dialogue about how much she hates herself and how much she wants to stop and how she she keeps promising and she's not able. That That's Cara's secret and it's, and it's a, a, a really painful one. You've been open, Marion, about your own recovery from alcohol addiction. Are there parallels with, yeah. with what you went through and with Cara's struggle with bulimia? I mean, for me, I think all addiction comes from the same place. It comes from a feeling of incompleteness, you know, spiritually, emotionally. And for me, my feeling is like for me, it was alcohol. But if alcohol hadn't been available, I'm fairly sure that I would have attached myself to whatever was available that managed to change my feelings and make me feel better. I mean, that's what people with addictions are doing. They're people in extreme emotional pain who are trying to change how they feel. They're trying to feel different. There are highs generated by the binging and purging of, um, of bulimia. That probably would have been attractive to me. I mean, so I would have found something um, if it hadn't been alcohol. And I am fully convinced that all addictions are pretty much, they come from the same source. They may have to be treated differently, but 
it's the same pain. It's the same gap that generates them. Mm. There's some tough love in, in store for Kara in the novel Once Her Secret's Out. What can you say about her relationship with her husband, Ed, and, and I guess about the relationship that people watching on as their loved ones are gripped with an addiction? Like what, yeah. what is the role of, of family and, and husbands and wives and friends watching someone go through an addiction, whether it be to alcohol or, or an issue around food? For every addict, I think they say like 10 other people are affected. It is almost as painful for the spouse or the friend or the loved ones or the children of an addict as it is for the addicts themselves because they're watching this person that they love. Um, and in Ed's case, Ed really loves Cara. Like, I mean, it's a really healthy marriage. Like, he adores her. And he he's wounded that she's doing this thing in secret, you know, they're each other's best friends and he's hurt that she's excluded him from from this. You know, I suppose not really understand that addicts will always exclude people from anything that interferes with their addiction. I mean, addicts protect their addiction above all else. And it's not that they're incapable of love or not that they don't love people. It's that the the addiction is stronger. And, you know, I, I really, really feel for for the families and loved ones. And in, in this case, there is, you know, there's a kind of an inciting incident that means that she has to get help. But like Ed is gutted, like he's devastated. And um, yeah, it is just very, very hard for those who love an addict. You, you know, clearly uh, are always willing to look at some dark, messy stuff around human behaviour. I mean, you're drawn to that in all kinds of forms. But I can also feel fairly confident when I'm reading a novel of yours, Marion, that I'm going to have at least a hopeful ending, even if not a kind of the happy ending that I would have maybe imagined where all the characters are paired off the way I might have wanted. You always yeah. want to give some kind of hope. Is that a deliberate strategy from, from you as a writer? Very much. I mean, absolutely. And it's f- funny because I have a kind of a paradoxical attitude to happy endings. First of all, I feel life is hard and we need hope. But then on the other hand, I feel Life is lovely an awful lot of the time, you know, and people live content lives. I mean, we're not ecstatically, wildly joyous every second of our lives, but a lot of us are doing okay. And I suppose there's a kind of a third answer also in that, like, in every life, there are moments where kind of everything has kind of clicked into place for a while. And if you were writing a book about that person's life, you could end it there. And then obviously time will go on and things will go weird and the happy ending disappears and other stuff happens and people work their way through it. And then things rebuild again. And hey, we'll end the book here because, again, that's that's a happy time. And personally, I've gone through stuff in my life and I've had times of of kind of profound unhappiness. And there are times there were times when I thought I would never feel normal again. And now I do. Like I've lived some happy endings. You know, they're not completely unrealistic, I think. And that's what I want to offer my readers because my characters usually go to something fairly unpleasant. I want us all to have hope. But I all I want us to believe that like happiness is possible 
now and again. <laughs> like, because it's not a constant state. Like, it can't be. You know, like the way no one emotion, God love us human beings, like we pursue constant happiness as if it's a, a state that is achievable and that will endure. But like happiness is just one emotion of the thousands that we can feel, you know, like the, the whole thing of thing of being happy all the time just is codswallop. <laughs> but we can be, you know, we can be calm, we can be content, we can be grateful, or we can sit with some really uncomfortable things in our lives and also be able to appreciate the good. And I think that's the most mature way of looking at well, how I want to live my life, that the pain doesn't have to be the only thing that matters. This is Conversations with Sarah Konofsky on ABC Radio. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Marion, what happened in, in your own family life while you were working on this novel? Why did it take you longer to finish than you'd expected? Um, my dad died he died, it was 18 months ago, it was December 2018. And it was, it was such a strange time, even before he died, because he, my mother had been taking care of him at home. And in the April of that year, he went into hospital and he kept getting infection after infection. And it became clear that like, she was never going to be able to take care of him at home again. And so when he was well enough to leave hospital, he went to a home and it was like it was such a weird. The whole thing about denial and death is so weird. Like once he was in the home, we all behaved as he was going to be there for for years and years that he, he would last a long time there. Um, but he last he, he was there for eight months. And he had Alzheimer's, Marion, didn't he, in, in the lead up to his death. What was it like spending time with him in those final months with that illness? How did that affect your relationship with him? This is going to sound weird because Alzheimer's, a lot of people who get Alzheimer's get very angry and, and abusive. And my dad didn't. Like my dad was always a, a warrior. And he was always kind of stressed. And when he got Alzheimer's, he became this really incredibly loving man, like this, the sweetest man. Like it was absolutely gorgeous. It was so odd for me to say, I am so glad I knew him when he had Alzheimer's because it's like my relationship with him became full circle. You know, he loved me the way he loved me as a child. You know, and he kept telling me he loved me, you know, because I used to spend Mondays with him um, so that my mother could have time, a break, you know. And like he was no trouble because, you know, he could barely walk and all he did was watch telly, really. And he would tell me he loved me. He would tell me I was beautiful. You know, he asked me what I did for a job, you know, and I told him I wrote books. And he was so impressed, <laughs> you know, and I showed him some of them. He was just amazed that I did this 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 amazing thing. And like, 
Um, and he wanted to know, was I well paid? Because, you know, he never stopped worrying. He wanted to know, was I married? Was he a nice man? You know, and we used to, the thing that kind of never really left him was that he loved sport. Like he loved golf. And we used to watch golf on the telly together. And what did he mean? He had some incredible wisdom even then, you know. He said he was watching one golfer, you know, about to take a shot. And he said, oh, you know. You've got to behave like you know what you're doing. And I said, is that just in in golf, Dad, is it? And he goes, yeah, in golf and in life. You know, like stuff like that. He had moments of of extraordinary wisdom, even in that. You know, even though like he'd have forgotten, like he'd be looking for biscuits and I'd be pointing at the plate and saying, look at Dad, you just had to. And when he died, I mean, the shock was indescribable, even though it was obvious it was going to happen. I do think it's amazing how we as human beings, we just do our level best to protect ourselves against pain. Like, um, God, I'll never forget. I mean, we had about 48 hours before he died and they literally told us in the home he has about 48 hours. And, I, you know, I remember sitting there with my mother and we believed it for a while and then we went over to see him and then we decided we didn't believe it, even though there was no reason not to. It's so incomprehensible, isn't it, though, on a deep kind of animal level that this person that you've known your whole life who's right here, somehow in another hour or so, they're gone. I don't think our brains can make sense of it. I don't think it's just denial. I think it's, it's sort of incomprehensible, really. Yeah. And there's also that feeling of, and I think, again, every person goes through it like that. Those things only happen to other people, which is complete nonsense. (laughs) Like it happens to everybody. But until you become that other person, until the other person is you, it's really hard to believe it. Yeah, it was just the strangest, strangest time. Were you there when you when he passed away, Marion? No, like we were all there and back a huge amount over those precious 48 hours. And none of us were there when he died. And people say that, I don't know, that people choose when they die. And I actually got a call because I live really near the nursing home. I got a call, a really panicky one saying, come quick, like he only has a few minutes. And by the time I arrived, he was gone. And I think people sort of over fetishize those final moments and being there with the person because I had my whole life with them. (laughs) And also, I believe that he chose when he went. Maybe he didn't want us to be there. Maybe he thought it would make us sad. And really, it doesn't. The final moment doesn't matter. You know, I got my opportunity to thank him and to tell him I loved him and that I knew he loved me. And that was okay. And that's the sort of solitariness you were talking about earlier too, isn't it? On a deep level, it is a solitary journey, that step from from breathing to not whether your loved ones are nearby or not exactly what what kind of farewell did you have for him marion we had a thing how do you call it a reposal when he lay in his coffin and and people came and people came from so many parts of his life but also from all his children's lives and my mother's lives and then on the day of the uh, funeral we had a big lunch in his golf club And it was so lovely. Lots of people who, like friends of mine who had known dad when they were about 15, all came and and cousins of his, you know, came 
from Limerick, like cousins that we'd all sort of left, lost contact with. And, you know, and the atmosphere wasn't exactly party-like, but it was upbeat and it was fun. And some of the things I found so helpful about it was, you know, some of his cousins who were younger than him were telling me what he had been like as a young man and how he was very serious and very studious, you know, took his studies very seriously. And I learned more about him that day than I had learned in, you know, maybe the previous 30 years. Like, And it was very nice to hear how he had affected other people, how good he had been to people. It was hugely helpful. You know, I hadn't wanted to go to the funeral. I just I felt I couldn't bear it. And of course, I had to go. And But I'm really glad that I did because there is a purpose to these things. It was healing. And there was a lot of laughter. You know, and then all his grandkids were there and they are such wonderful kids. And his legacy was there also. So it wasn't all terrible. Mm. How has the the experience of grief been for you in the months since he passed away? Is it different than you'd read about or, or expected? I don't think anyone can quite prepare for it. I mean, I thought it would be all about him and crying and missing him. And it has been just a really rocky, strange time. I mean, the first thing that I am so aware of is I am exhausted so much of the time. Not so much now, actually, but like in maybe the first four or five months afterwards, you know, that indescribable bone weariness where like, I, you know, I, I would just lie on the couch and and almost be unconscious then an awful lot of physical pain like I have arthritis and kind of almost from the second he died you know the muscles the joints in my hands have flared up and they're really painful and my head just wouldn't work like I couldn't write I was meant to have finished my book by the end of December um, and he died on the 15th. And so they gave me an extension. But it was the oddest thing. Like I couldn't write basic sentences and I couldn't figure out what was going to happen to the characters in Grown Ups. I just didn't know. I felt completely incapable of kind of wrapping up their stories. That connection to whatever part of me provides the story was severed. And, and then the, the huge thing that I, I'd say probably happens to everyone is that, uh, you know, I was afraid of everyone I loved dying. I think once you've learned that mort- mortality is real, it kind of felt like the floodgates were open. And, you know, I'd waken an awful lot in the middle of the night just to check that my husband was still alive. It must have been terrifying for you to feel that the connection to story had been severed, as you put it. How did that come back? How did you refine that part of you that? knew where those characters would end up who could recreate that imaginary world. I had to wait it out. It was weird. I'd been battering away like trying to trying to, I don't know, sculpt a granite cliff with an ale file. Then just one day it was like you know when your ears pop on the plane? It was like that suddenly like, oh yeah, Jesus, it's so easy. You know? <laughs> and suddenly it was all there. It's like, well, Christ, quick, write it before it goes away again. <laughs> but it was, but like there was nothing I did. This was not on my terms. It belonged someplace else. So it came and it's funny now with these strange days that we're in. My head isn't working so well either now, but for different reasons. Mm. 
How's your mum been, Marianne? How has she been handling the loss of her husband of so many years? She has been utterly incredible. She loved him so much and she was so devoted to him. Like, oh, she was so kind to him always. And she very much put her life on hold. Like she would never go away overnight or anything like that. And the thing that kept her sane was bridge. And afterwards, she resumed living. You know, I was so afraid she'd turn her face to the wall and that she'd be gone like in, you know, in three months. She did the complete opposite. She was out to bridge like you know, four times a week. Then the next thing she starts organising road trips, like, you know, for the length and breadth of Ireland, like catching up on people that she hadn't seen in a long time. And me and my husband were the ones who were, you know, to drive her places. And it was just the best fun, you know. And then she's so funny. I was with her one day and uh, she goes, um, look up on your yoke, which, you know, is my internet thing. She goes, look up on your yoke and see if there's any cruises that leave from Dublin port. And I looked up on my yoke and there was a cruise that went to Norway. And she goes, great, she says, fuck it. And I'm like, what? And uh, because, you know, this this was so unusual. I said, who's going? And she goes, you, me, Katrina and Rita Ann. That's my sister's. And I said, Ranzo. She goes, no men. She says, no husbands, just the four of us. And I booked it. And we were meant to be going at the end of the month to here, May. So it's been cancelled, oh, no. obviously, you know. No, no, no. But she's still, she's, she absolutely has faith that it will be re-available, whatever the word is, you know, this time next year. And that we'll go then. But she was all like, now, make sure there's a hairdresser's on it and bingo and <laughs> You know, and it was just so great. Well, how's she handling lockdown then, being ever having her wings clipped the way that yeah, she must be at the again, moment? Again, I, I really worried, but they make them tough, that generation, you know, and it's hard for her because she's she's a people person, but she is, my brother Ty has three young kids. Teddy is five, Hannah's two and a half, and, uh, and Tomas is three months, and Tyg brings the bunnies over to her most days and they have to stand in the garden and shout in at her. But she gets huge joy out of that. And she's really obsessed with Tomas, who is uh, the youngest lad, who is, you know, he's about the size of me at the moment. He's ginormous. <laughs> and um, and he's he's at the smiling stage. He's just started smiling and laughing. So um, Tyg holds him up. And Hannah, who's two and a half, utterly adores my mother and Hannah can't really speak but she can say some words she calls my mother Baka we all call her Baka it's complicated it's because some of her other grandchildren are half Serbian and my mother doesn't want to be called granny because in case people might think she was old you know <laughs> so we've agreed on Baka instead you know so Hannah yells Baka Baka and she's blowing kisses and stuff but then Hannah goes to Tomas who is like you know, bursting out of the car seat and all. And he points, she points at Tomas and then she points in at the in the window at Mam and goes, Baka, like she's introducing them, <laughs> you know. Oh, she's the best. My memory of meeting you, Marianne, is, is that you're very glamorous. You know, you've got the, the, this gorgeous oh hair gosh. and nails. I want to know, are you keeping all no. that up in isolation or have you let yourself go to seed? Oh, oh my God, I look like I've been living in a swamp. Oh, my God. 
the utter absolute state of me. I mean, for me, you know, all my power is vested in my hair and I have got really coarse, thick, dreadful, frizzy hair. And also my hair grows at an alarming rate and it's and, and like I'm grey and um, it's kind of like trying to diet to keep up with the, the gushing of it is, is just a pointless exercise, you know, and trying to trying to make it smooth. and all. But you know what? There's a certain amount of delight in letting it all go to hell. <laughs> like there is a kind of a, it's like those things really mattered to me in the before time. If I was doing any sort of work thing, I'd need to have my hair blow dried by a person who was very skilled. And the thought of, you know, not being able to get it was a worry. And I think one of the, the good things that, that has come out of this has just reminded me like, nobody cares. You know, nobody really cares what you look like. And that's been nice. I think the other thing around that is, you know, getting older is is meant to be this terrible thing for women, you know, terrible Mm. for the way we look anyway. But I think a lot of us actually start being kinder to ourselves and our bodies as we get older. We start looking at them differently than when we were in our 20s or, or earlier. Have you found that at all? I have. I have. I completely have. Like, I mean, I've always like so many women have had such a tortured relationship with my body. But at the moment, I'm thinking, you know, look at how good it is to me. Look at all the things it does for me. You know, and I've been able to exercise. And I think, look at that fair play to it. Well done. And (laughs) it's yeah, I absolutely agree. I know that I'm more than my appearance. And that's a nice way to feel. Like that's a very healthy way to feel. I mean, that kind of negative self-talk has definitely died down. I mean, I don't know for me if it will ever go, but it is definitely quieter. The the, the volume has definitely been, been dialed down. You know, and I know people who love me and like me feel that way about me regardless of what I look like. And that's, God, that's a great old way to feel. Mm. I think it's clear, isn't it, as you get older, I really know I'd rather sit next to someone, if we're ever allowed to have dinner parties again, who's old and had a whole life of interesting experiences than, you know, an 18-year-old with rock-hard abs. I know where I'd rather have the conversation, with all respect to the 18-year-old. Oh, well, of course, with all due respect to the (laughs) 18-year-old. Yeah, you know, it's very comforting, I think, to meet people who have survived, you know, who have lived through the normal. No life is going to be without its bursts of terrible pain or strange pain or long worrying stuff. You know, everyone goes through it. And it is lovely to talk to people about how we make peace with those times because it does strengthen us. And it does teach us that most things are survivable. I like to be told that, you know, I like to be reminded of it. Looking uh, at least on the outside in at your country, at Ireland, it seems to have gone through some extraordinary changes in the last 10, 20 years. Uh, I'm thinking particularly about the the referendum in 2018 on changing the laws Mm. on abortion, which happened after a huge campaign led by Irish women. Tell me about your involvement in that and what that experience was like. Oh, my God, Sarah, it's the most profound political event I have ever lived through. 
there was an energy that had been building from the ground up, like ordinary women. Like this was very much a grassroots thing. Like political parties have subsequently tried to attach themselves to it. But this was women who were saying, we've had enough of having to go to another country to terminate pregnancies and we don't want it for our daughters. And it was difficult. It was scary for me to sort of put my hand up and say, you know what? You're right. And I want to be part of this. And I had written my previous book, The Break, and I had put in it an abortion storyline in it because I thought if I write about an approachable young woman having to travel, you know, being 17, being too young to have a child and having to travel, maybe those people who are opposed to having abortion in any form in Ireland, maybe that might make them reconsider. And then the campaign started around early April of 2018. And the first sign that something was changing was the umbrella organisation to legalise abortion wanted to raise €50,000 like for posters and stuff. And they gave a week to raise it and they raised it in a morning. Hmm. And that was the sign that something was afoot. Because these still ordinary women were up against the might of, you know, an awful lot of money was coming into Ireland from the US, from, you know, the Christian right, you know, the, the, the pro-legalisation, the repeal people had so little money. But those two months between the start of April and then the 26th of May, when, when the vote happened, they, it was so ugly and it was so fraught. And right up to the very last moment, I really felt that the no side could easily win. I mean, the polls were unpredictable and every political debate was analysed afterwards to see, you know, who, who came out the best. And the more the time went on, I began speaking publicly about it. And it was such on a personal level. It was a huge evolution. Is that the word I'm looking for? I had grown up because I was saying something that was unpalatable to an awful lot of people. But I believed it was right. And I was saying it. And then the final week before the vote, I've often said, I wish I could go back and live that week again, knowing now that we had won. Because it was obvious. And it felt like that entire week was really sunny and the weather was so beautiful. And at every kind of road junction, there were groups of people standing with placards and, you know, and saying honk if you want repeal. Everyone was beeping and there was this kind of carnival atmosphere. And like carnival was so deserved because it was such a shift for Irish women. Prior to this, when an Irish woman was pregnant, she literally did not own her body. Doctors could do anything they wanted to an Irish woman while she was pregnant. There were such terrible stories like of a woman who had cancer and she was dying. But the painkillers would have damaged the fetus while she was alive. That You know, there was still a chance that the fetus could be born. So she died in agony. Mm. It wasn't just about people having to travel. It was about ownership of our own body. And it was like this gorgeous upsurge. And then I voted and I was actually in the Bath Festival, which had been booked weeks and weeks and weeks before we knew. But I remember like when the results came in on the night of the 25th, the polls closed at 10 o'clock and I was with my lovely friend Louise O'Neill. And you do not know. I mean, the tension was indescribable. And 
her boyfriend is a journalist and she was on the phone to him and the next thing she started like crying and you know and she said it's a landslide to yes and it just meant so much for all of us what did it mean beyond beyond the actual vote around those rights to abortion it feels the way you're describing it and looking at the pictures and and reading the news stories at the time it felt like it was even bigger than that it was some sort of watershed moment about irish history or culture yeah because we had moved from one colonial power to the church like the catholic church had kept us prisoners and women counted for nothing. And there is still a clause in the Irish constitution that says a woman's place is in the home, quite literally. But it was like, we're not taking it any longer. We are fully realised human beings. You're absolutely right in, in that it felt it was much, much, much bigger than that one issue. And the thing that has filled my heart so much was how young people behaved. Young women and men. I mean, an awful lot of men were very much on on women's side during this. But the courage that they had and just their defiance. It's like we're not putting up with this any longer. We deserve so much better. You know, we are going to remake the world to suit us. And that sort of courage and defiance, I think, you know, is going to affect so many other areas like how women are treated in the workplace. You know, the work of young women writers, for example, is recognised. How rape victims are treated by juries and courts. How we deal with violence in the home or, you know, domestic abuse, coercive control. Like across the board, Irish women, they, they're able to vocalise what they deserve now. And they're bringing about change. And one other thing that is lovely, I said, it really politicised an entire generation of young Irish women. What about you, Marin? You ever going to go and put yourself forward for election? I'm not tough enough. <laughs> I feel, I suppose, that I can do some good with the books I write and sometimes with the interviews I do. But I am not that kind of person. I know I'm not. I mean, I, I would want to, but I know I wouldn't survive. Well, I think what you are is just perfect. And it's been such a delight to speak to you on Conversations. Thank you so much for being my guest. It's my utter pleasure, Sarah, to talk to you again. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Kanoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.